All right, folks, this is Ergo. Yes, it is. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping Chicago and beyond for the more equitable and creative. We do indeed. How you feeling, Dave? I'm feeling pretty good. How are you feeling? Oh. This is a special recording. Oh, shucks. Gentlemen. The day this is recorded is Daniel Kissinger's 28th birthday. A self kaka. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing okay. What's your What's your animal walk up music? Mmm. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question, but last night <laughs> I started imitating a pug. <laughs> so I was at a, a party this weekend and someone whose house it was not mm-hmm. brought her pug to the party, mm-hmm. which felt like a benign violation. Bold move. And it wasn't like, I love dogs mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. A pug is barely a dog. <laughs> I know I'm, I, I want all the smoke on this one. <laughs> A pug is barely a dog. <laughs> what that creates is that then all of the conversation engaging her has to be about her dog. Yeah. And then everyone else has to pay attention to her dog. Yeah. I can't pug, wait for this person to hear this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to name you, but you know who you are. You know that's your pug. <laughs> but they don't really bark. <laughs> they don't really like have the physique to bark <laughs> because they can't really breathe. So it's more of a like... <laughs> Cause something like that. If you're still listening, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, but my birthday is going pretty well. Here's my plan for the day. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this. This is our like year, decade in review, mm-hmm. check out, mm-hmm. check in, yep. all the checks. Doing it. Cut the checks. Yes. Then therapy. Yes. Then sensory deprivation tank. Mm-hmm. Then dinner with my beloved. Yes. At a restaurant that I've been trying to get into, get a reservation at for like, Six months. Oh, wow. But I don't, it's not because it's like that hard. I just, I only think of it the day of, and Mm. it's always book day of. So that's the birthday plan. You know how to party. I know how to do something. (laughs) A party is a vague term, but here's what I am doing is the party. And you know you're invited to this. I am invited. Listeners. You're not. Like six of you are, (laughs) and you know who you are. But so in general, like anything that's really high expectation, I get like a little antsy on. So what I did last year for my birthday, I'm going to do it again. Just invite like the people who I like and want to spend time with. Come to my house. I'll make a main dish. You bring a side or a dessert or a drink or something. A salad, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) We eat dinner together. And then what I'm adding this time is a screening of the wonderful concert film documentary, When We Were Kings, which is about the rumble in the jungle. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll be doing for my birthday in a couple of days mm-hmm. with other people. What did you What did you do for your birthday this year? I'm trying to remember. Oh, man. I had, at the time of my life. What'd you do? So, you know, we have breathing room. I know a guy there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had a little kickback shindig uh, where, you know, folks were able to come, fellowship, celebrate. I procured... A lot of psilocybin mushrooms, also known as shrooms. I personally took a lot of them, allowed other people to partake. Only a few, a smaller percentage than I thought and expected. Hmm. Maybe like 27% of the room <laughs> had some type of shrooms. But that's enough. I, I think they're radioactive. So like this spiritual drum circle impromptu happened, this like chanting thing. It was it was amazing. Yeah. And so that's a tricky percentage. 27? Yeah, because if you didn't have a hundred people there. <laughs> Anyway, that's not the point. So So, what are we doing here today, Dame? We don't have a guest. Yeah, we're going to chop it up. But before we do, I have to offer you some gas on your birthday as as we we in this room. Uh, You know, we've we've been 
partners and friends now, a little bit over four years. Um, and I just want to commend you and thank you uh, for just how diligent of a person you are, um, how kind and caring you are, the great work that you do here and in so many other spaces. The thing that I, I know about you uh, is that you bring value hmm. wherever you go. So there are a few rooms or a few spaces that I think we both agree upon that you might not have been in if it wasn't for like our relationship and partnership. Hmm. And once you get there, you have always been accountable, responsible, and added a great value. That is not only something that has benefited my life, but I think is a, a really powerful model and example of how people need to move through the world within their position. So Thanks, thank man. you so much for, for, for being who you are and all that you do. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. All right, now I can retire. <laughs> no, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> All right, let's do this. What we're thinking about doing here today, mm-hmm. um, what I'm bringing to the to the floor, mm-hmm. is everyone's got their like year in review, decade in review. Everyone's waxing all nostalgic about the 2010s, mm-hmm. but it ran amok. Yeah, yeah, yeah and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you're a listener, you know how we feel about a muckness. We we do not tolerate any mucks. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to spend a little time starting beef with the last 10 years. Yeah, let's do it. So, Dame, you want to start it off? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm going to start with the one that I think comes up the most for me, the Obama administration. Please elaborate. So, again, I don't. I think accountability happens through relationship, right? So I don't have any relationship outside of one of harm and oppression to like what the Republican Party represents. However, Barack Obama as a, you know, Chicago political entity, as someone who uh, very actively capitalized on a black tradition, I would say even a black liberatory tradition, I believe that his administration betrayed it in ways that are not out of the norm of what the executive branch has done, but no one else had that position or relationship to it. So, you know, bombing people around the world, increasing the expenditures of mass incarceration, particularly through the Drug Enforcement Agency. And we know that that has been one of the most racially charged or or disparity, you know. Disparate. Disparate is the word I'm looking for. Um, And I think the list goes on and on of how he upheld norms that hurt black people while capitalizing off the political body. And is still doing it. And is still doing when it. When he doesn't even have to. Because it, there's something that, because of Trump being so wild that we don't talk about with him, uh, there is a major amount of narcissism that I'm starting to feel from him. Because mm. it seems like his top priority is his legacy. Um, and he's willing to, like, throw anybody under the bus for that. And it doesn't serve or benefit anybody but him. Do you feel like the patina is coming off in general? Like, do you feel like, like, obviously there's still people who he's messianic too so they're not going to challenge him or whatever but do you feel like you're hearing that more and more because we've been talking about this for a long time but do you feel like you're seeing that more and more i mean in my spaces yeah i know i don't think in pop culture popular like i i don't think that the democratic party feels like they have to account right like right now we're in getting built up for primary right. season. There's not an accounting of, oh, we need to correct in the way like the Bush legacy. Right, like they didn't it. let him campaign for McCain. Yeah, yeah. Right. And they would like, he was like a counterpoint of like, we're going to do things differently from Bush, even though they were lying. Um, and I think he's held as the standard bearer, right? So if you say, I was with the Obama thing or I'm getting endorsed in some type of subtle way by that power base, hmm. there is like, you know, some cachet to that. Um, no, I don't think anybody's accounted for for it. But yeah, I think, you know, that's the beauty of of radical spaces. 
um, because we, yeah. we we see the whole and we center accountability. He's oh, this is a big one around Bush and Cheney and like war crimes. He said, oh, we're not going to look backwards; we look forward. And it's like, well, then everybody should be let out of prison. <laughs> Every crime has happened in the past, and so to say to the to the most consequential crimes, we let that go, while people are you know are dying in, in, in cages. The inconsistency in those logics from a privileged privileged position, it feels like we were exploited in ways that we will see the impact for for a few mm. decades. And it moved black people to the right. Hmm. So for the first time ever, this is something I saw during, uh, ah, what's the guy's name? Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report. Brilliant person. Look him up. He He proved that like throughout the last hundred years, black people were always the most anti-militaristic. Hmm. Right, like for every poll, for every military action, we were most likely to say, "Don't go over there, don't bomb those people, don't intervene." But when Obama was about to bomb Syria for the first time ever, the majority still said no. But it was like five black people at like five percentage point higher hmm. were in favor of it because they were in favor of whatever he would do, hmm. and so that is going to linger in our consciousness for a while. And that you mean you see the like the tactical attempts at continuing that momentum yeah. now. So here's my first one, yes. and it's a continuation <laughs> here. And it's it's a bit topical and a bit timely, in fact. My first beef of the decade is with the continuation of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So we're recording Oof. the week after the Afghanistan papers drop, Oof. and nary a reporter batted an eye. <laughs> There's an amazing piece on the Washington Post website, and they're the ones, some of their reporters were the ones who pulled this story forward and sued uh the government twice to get the papers mm-hmm. released. So for those who didn't see the story, what it is, is basically these on the record, but thought to be private conversations between uh, military officials, White House officials, and the inspector general uh, for Afghanistan, specifically about, not even about Iraq, right. just about Afghanistan, and mapping how from jump, these are the people who were in charge saying, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know who the enemy was. We didn't know what winning looked like. And we were actively misleading the public. Right. And so you can juxtapose that with all of the statements and the the way that the PR and the spin of mm-hmm. it was. Um, and again, so I think there's two reasons why this didn't become a big or three reasons why this didn't become a big story. One, the just like collusion of press and government and mm-hmm. power and all that. Two, it happened at the same time as impeachment, mm-hmm. which is a little convenient. But mm-hmm. even without the tinfoil hat, yeah. that just is a fact. But then three, I think a lot of people from jump just knew this. Right. So it feels like confirmation (laughs) bias. It's like we all knew this was bullshit. Right. In real time, there was, they had to, they worked so hard to prove, to provide the justification for this, even after 9 11, that so many people were so skeptical that this doesn't feel like, um, when you hear people talk about Watergate, right? It's like, oh my God, he was tapping this. Oh my God, they Mm -hmm. were doing. This is not a surprise. The only thing that's a surprise is that we have the record of them saying it, mm-hmm. right? Is that these people who double down over and over and over again. So my first beef with the 2010s is all of the times that we yeah. were told we're making progress. That's a great We one. need to send that's more people. One. And that's another thing back to like my, it's not even mm-hmm. about him per se, but if he was not the second of those three presidents, if it was Bush, white guy Trump, mm-hmm. there would be more outrage. Right, mm-hmm. but because the good person was in the middle of that, it's like, oh, it's a little bit understandable. Uh, but we're, we're, you know, to them like gaslighting folks' real demands of like, oh, we need to get out of student debt, or oh, we need healthcare, yeah. and then they laugh at them like we're fifth graders wanting more pizza and lunch. It's like, how are we going to pay for that? 
when there was a trillion dollars just to Afghanistan. Yeah, one of the things that they talk about in the article, uh, a military ranking member whose responsibility it was was to allocate resources for this one district in Afghanistan that was about the size of a medium-sized American state. Mm-hmm. And they were s- supposed to spend $3 million a day mm-hmm. on a district the size of a state where people were living in nomadic huts. Mm-hmm. And they had nowhere to spend the money, but they had to because the money kept coming. Yeah. And so the contracts just kept getting bigger and bigger and the corruption just kept getting bigger and bigger. And that then fueled the distrust that people there had in their government because mm-hmm. they were watching this money disappear over mm-hmm. and over again and their basic needs still weren't being met. Here's a crazy stat about it. Adjusted for inflation, we've spent more money supposedly building infrastructure in Afghanistan that's not there mm-hmm. than we spent in the entire Marshall Plan rebuilding Western Europe. So that's some solid beef. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's take it down a notch. Okay, what do you um, got? I'm gonna go with uh, communication style things. Take it out of the the superstructural political. It's this new phrase I got. I've, I've shared it with you. Capcom. All right, break it down. The way in which people communicate. I think now people are replicating the tone of captions and comments on mm-hmm. social media. So you know. You're in the middle of a sentence and somebody just says, period. And it's like, I'm not trying to knock like <laughs> slang and lingo. I'm all for like breaking standard. But it's not breaking. It's like this. It is like a new standardization. Oh, is there anything worse than when someone goes LOL? Yeah. Yeah. All of that. So like these little like fragmented thoughts and, you know, it's like a caption. Everybody's speaking in these like little comment type styles. Um, and I'll, I'll be building up more examples. It's a, it's a new concept for me. I thought it was a cool little language, Capcom. This perfectly brings me to my next beef with the decade which is with pop rap electro group, LMFAO, Mm. which is an example of what you're talking about. But in general, just feels to me like if culture moves in waves and you have peaks and valleys, that really just feels like a low valley to me Mm -hmm. of like 2012 EDM, neon glasses, just like it doesn't get any worse than that. So LMFAO, I don't know where you are right now, but just know I have beef with you. All right, I'm gonna take it back up. Let's go back up in our peaks and valleys. (laughs) The corporate industrial complex. It used to be, we can say like this industry was bad, like a military industry is bad, but post bailout specifically of these like trillions of dollars of investments into the financial industry, which then filters out into all industries Um, and with the decrease in demand for labor. So it used to be the excuse for all this wealth extraction and hoarding was, well, we need jobs and these are employers. But now the technological reality and the global reality is shift where corporations don't need a people right. to 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 be profitable. And so now we're not even in on any of the benefits. And so like the destruction is just like unchecked. So, you know, healthcare industry is like almost just as villainous as energy, as military, right. um, as defense contractors. Um, media is like just as villainous and just as complicit, I think, as all of it. So let's stop trying to talk about each industry without naming that it's corporate industry overall yeah. across the economy yeah. or across the political economy is being being super destructive, particularly post-bailout, because now we've subsidized it. I'm thinking about then in the response to all of those things, we kind of don't ever really talk about Occupy. <laughs> One, because neither of us were, I think, really big yeah, in it. It wasn't yeah. our entry points. Yeah, we were still in school. Yeah, but that was, you know, toward the beginning of this decade, a, like, global movement challenging the corporatization and consolidation of wealth that has kind of never been, at least since, paralleled in any way and Mm -hmm. changed the world. 
there are many accounts of like direct infiltration and undermining from within and like not really a secret. You talk to anyone who was there, there's always like, well, there was this one guy who just kept telling us to like burn things down <laughs> and none of us knew him and he would leave every night. Like just like really obvious. Things. So here's what my beef is. My beef is with undercover cops. Uh. Now I know that's not new to this decade, <laughs> but even on an aesthetic level, <laughs> They have, like, they are be better actors. <laughs> Y'all need a better costume department. Because the, the sports jersey over the button down <laughs> is really just, that is a washed look for anybody. I know this is not my main, it's so funny. It reminds me, I recently said to Rosie, shout out Rosie, that like a mission of mine was to get white people to moisturize. And she was like, maybe try to get white people to do something else first. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can get it. You yeah. take a step. Start with the Absolutely, stuff. absolutely. Transformation piece by piece. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other beef you want to end there? Three seems good. Three does seem good. Damon, you got any other ones? Okay. This one is personal. You're going to shed a tear here. I have. I have. A dragon egg shaped tear. Yeah. Um, David and Dan. <laughs> Could you please, people might not know them by those terms. So... I think it's uh it's David Benioff and DB Weiss, mm-hmm. also Dan Weiss. They were the showrunners of Game of Thrones. Um, and so those <clears throat> I'm sorry, folks, I'm uh, struggling here. For those who've been listening with any type of dedication, you you know that I was serious about Game of Thrones. What I would say is, if they haven't read the books, I know more about the show than anybody you know. That would be my claim. Mm-hmm. to every person I met because I put in the work I was emotionally invested at my lowest times isolated in dorm rooms and in rundown homes I would watch Game of Thrones on repeat tell him David and then I would research the characters the backstory he would research the characters I would look at theories and, and so then they make six of the best seasons of television ever take a long hiatus and let's get to it let's, let's let people know what happened to Game of Thrones for those okay. who were upset? Six seasons of classics. Uh, Jon Snow dies, comes to life, takes over Winterfell. If you haven't seen it yet, fuck it. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> takes back Winterfell. Boom. Daenerys is about to cross the sea. We are all excited to see what's about to happen. The game of the, the throne is it, it's, it's happening. They say, all right, we're going to take a two-year hiatus, more or less. And when we come back, we're only going to do two more seasons. But we're going to shorten those seasons from 20 episodes to 13. Okay. Okay. Why, we ask? Is it the studio? No. HBO's got a blank check. They want nine more seasons. Is it George? No. He's ready and he's committed. He'll do it. You know, what's happened? No, it's the showrunners because they have a deal with Star Wars. So Time Order HBO, billion-dollar franchise. Disney Star Wars, another billion-dollar franchise. They just got it coming. It's just all Mm -hmm. them. I'm sorry I'm taking so long. <laughs> this means so much to me. We got it. We're good. <laughs> so they shorten the shit, and now the story doesn't make sense. Timelines are off. All of the like fantasy elements that they built up and all of the lore, they just start collapsing or getting rid of in really irresponsible ways um, that don't make sense to all the people that have been really invested. Horrible storytelling, great production. It's because they got to do Star Wars. So then news comes out. They're leaving Star Wars because now Netflix gave them $250 million to do whatever they want for an undisclosed project. So it's like, okay, now that's Time Warner, HBO, Disney, Star Wars, Netflix, and they just can shuffle through and be artistically irresponsible Mm -hmm. based off these business deals. Who the fuck are these guys, right? Right. Because the story is 
they were nobodies. So they hadn't ever made a show before. Somehow they get a meeting with George R.R. R. Martin, one of the greatest writers of all time. Get he access, entrusts his show to Get them. access to, to, yeah. to this product. And then they fail at the pilot. And anybody who, who knows media, failing at the pilot is a death nail, right? Like, you mm-hmm. don't come back from that. They fail at the pilot. They get to make a second pilot. And then they start saying things like, oh, we didn't know we needed to hire writers. Oh, we don't know how to work with a costume designer. Oh, we don't care about fantasy elements. Oh, themes are for eighth grade book reports. It's all about power, right? Who are these guys? How did he get that meeting in the first place? So David Benioff, his name is actually not David Benioff. Benioff is his mother's maiden name. His name is David Freeman. David Freeman is son of Stephen Freeman, who was a chair of Goldman Sachs <laughs> on Clinton Bush's economic council policy board or something, and then the head of the Bush's presidential internal intelligence advisory board. So he was the executive's branch oversight over the NSA, CIA, FBI, all the intelligence agencies. Oy. So this is just like the ultimate story of white privilege. Mm-hmm. They said this was the most expensive film school they've ever, you know, of all time because they didn't know what they were doing. And then they very irresponsibly threw away and trashed this beautiful, beautiful work. Um, and I don't even be liking white shit like that. Right. You know what I'm saying? So that's how hot it was because this was like some of the whitest shit ever. Yeah. And it was still cold and they fucked it up because their dad run, owns, they own piece of Time Warner and HBO, right? Like right. Goldman Sachs. It's Goldman Sachs. Like, come on. Right. Like no, that's the, at, the nepotism of that is crazy. It's like, yeah, that's how you get in the room. Turns out that's how you get in the room. And you just think, how many brilliant showrunners, how many brilliant writers could do that work better? So yeah, if all those who watched and like watched it on demand and would see like the little post-show talk, the guy with the fucking cardigan and like the silver fox hair, who like, yeah, that dude. They did have good hair though. That hair, that hair, the, the haircuts stayed tight. Goldman Sachs will pay for a good head of hair. <laughs> This is one thing you take from And his dad, this is the thing about his dad. I don't know who the bigger beef is. Almost with him, but his dad's worse. His dad was the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank during the bailout and did not leave his board position at Goldman Sachs, which was illegal, and then basically said, fuck you, and increased his holding by $3 million, and then read a note to the public of like, I'm not following the rules. This is a distraction. I don't care. So he was... On the board of the Fed while also being on the board of Goldman Sachs during the bailout. Yes. And then also had had a hand in directing the policy under Bush. That led to the bailout. Fuck that guy. Yeah. That guy sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, you know, so then the- That's whose fault it is that Game of Thrones ended badly. Yes, yes. When you're like, who do we blame? That's who you blame. Probably because I feel like they were going to talk about the Iron Bank and he's like, no, son, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> you think that was the pivot point? Because they were setting up the Iron Bank to be- the the power mm-hmm. base of the whole thing, and yeah. then they just threw that away. Wow! All right, let's get that's out of, excellent. Let's get out of beef, but I want I need everybody to know. Yeah, no, that's a public service announcement if I've ever heard it. <laughs> All right, who do we want to thank? Yeah, who else from the decade should we thank before we get into like the personal relationships? Like, who are people who just did some good shit this over these last ten years? You know, all, all jokes aside, Alicia Garza, Charlene Carruthers, Philip Agnew. Um, the whole infrastructure that started what is known as the movement for Black Lives or Black Lives uh, Matter. I know I didn't say all of the the names, but mm-hmm. you know those people at the, you know on the national level, but then all the thousands of people across the country who came and showed out and have like irreversibly changed the discourse at minimum yeah. of our social political life and world. We wouldn't have a show, yeah, very like plainly if it was not for that. We'd have a different show, maybe. 
I, I would have a show. You would have a show. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be not that good. <laughs> but we would not have this show. And yeah. I wouldn't have a show, I don't think. I want to thank Kendrick Lamar. Oh, great one. Put in some good work this decade. Underappreciated. We look forward to hearing from him at some point, maybe soon. Hope that you But will. you know what? He did some good work. Congratulations. He just like had a daughter in the last few months. Congratulations. We love you. <laughs> Any other, what other thank yous you got? Shout out to our partners. Shout yeah. out Rosie and Jennifer. Absolutely. Holding us down, making us challenge ourselves, making us more like vulnerable people and men in this patriarchal society. And not just for changing me, but just for being, <laughs> being you. Great. Yeah, for being yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they help and show up for us and for this this work and are basically a part of it if they want to claim it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have offered one, a space on the microphone, and two, a portion in the About tab of our website. And... Rosie has not claimed uh, it. So I want to thank, uh, so, you know, we have had maybe five shows with no guest, mm -hmm. but all the other ones, someone has showed up every yeah, week. Yeah. That's crazy. That is. That is wild. Yeah, thank you for So everybody. thank you to all the guests who have come on so far. One, we're excited in the next year to circle back with some people and check in and, you know, of course, continue to expand the conversation, but we don't like pay people to come here. It's in the middle of the day and people just show up and are willing to share. Um, and I really try not to take that for granted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course there's value to them in it as well, but you know, it's really a gift. So I really appreciate that people are willing to the people who have said yes to coming on the show and have sat down with us. Thank you for being willing to do that. I don't take that for granted at all. Here's a cliche. I hear people who make media say, and it always sounds like the right thing to say. <laughs> Thank you to the fans, man. Thank you to the <laughs> listeners. Without y'all, we would not be here. And that is the truth. But I actually, so. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, we might still be doing this. The, the thank you is true. <laughs> that we wouldn't be here. I think I would still be here. Yeah. But we really appreciate that yeah. you do. Y'all are paying anything. So. <laughs> You're can, welcome. Please, if you listen to the show and you see one of us, please tell us. It yeah. feels really, really, really good. Yeah. We Just, love that. I, I, shout out to, uh, I didn't catch his name, but yeah, I ran into him at the Humble Park Fieldhouse in the gym. <laughs> Your boy. My, my guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out you. Remind me your name next time I see you when I get off the treadmill. When I'm on the treadmill, I can't talk. I just, I can't do I'm out of breath. It's just not an option. But come up and say hi again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's look back a little bit. All right. So, you know, this is something we've asked people before. We might have asked ourselves, but it might have more significance today because on this actual day, 10 years ago, you turned 18. Shit. So. <laughs> I became major. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... As opposed to minor for all the mm -hmm. slow people out there. Um, and this is a slow, safe space. You don't have to get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> no stigma or shame. Uh, so yeah, we'll talk to that guy. Ooh, 18-year-old me? What's he doing? What's he thinking about the world? What are some of the things that are not inevitable that maybe he can be steered? 18-year-old mm. me was just coming out of the hardest year of my life. That remains the hardest year of my life. Mm. So right after my 17th birthday, my grandpa passed. Mm. And that year in general, so here's how I describe my junior year of high school. My grandpa passed, four kids in my school passed, the security guard in my school passed, I took the SATs and I lost my virginity. Mm. Oh, and my aunt passed. Mm. So that was a crazy, and I'd never, like that's just like yeah, yeah. a lot to get yeah, yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and my family 
thought we had bed bugs. So all of our possessions had to be put into bags. Mm. Our whole house had to be taken apart. Mm-hmm. Every book gone through, every, and we got a lot of books. All the clothes washed and dried. Like, just like turned our lives upside down at the same time that I was getting ready to leave for the first time. I don't know why that felt like such a stunt to me. And we got a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only person that that's a flex to. Hey, we got a lot of books. We actually do have way too many yeah. books in my house yeah. in the Bronx. Um, but so 18-year-old me was like, trying to figure out i think like i'd been in crisis mode for a really long time and was trying to figure out like okay i'm not in the same place i was before all this happened even though there's nothing terrible happening right now there were terrible it's just not me but trying to figure out all right so now as i'm trying to figure out this next step like what am i what am i going to do trying to figure out where to go to college all that stuff and I think feeling some remorse, or at least I feel it now, but I, I'm going to project it into 18-year-old me, around some of the choices I made about like what to spend my time doing. I really devoted myself in baseball, and I love the game, and it gave me a lot of learning and camaraderie and all that. But you know, I spent, I've spent a lot of the 10 years since trying to make space for my creativity that I didn't make space for for those four years in high school. And there are things that were lost, like things that I could have then made if I had put the time in then that I didn't. And so I think on some level, I always feel a little bit like I'm playing catch up because mm-hmm. of that choice. And mm-hmm. obviously, like, I did not become a professional baseball player. <laughs> and I am professionally creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I feel a little bit of remorse for not having spent that time, not just like career-wise building this, but just like making room for that piece of myself that I was – afraid of because it was vulnerable you know Mm -hmm. like showing your creativity is a scary thing to do um and it's still something that i struggle with so yeah i think that's right around this time what i was wrestling with most how about you this is freshman year because i i was a little bit younger so i turned 18 Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks after i got to campus so at that time i think i was starting to know a name depression and shutdown and like some of my uh response mechanisms and i wish or i I would encourage myself to challenge myself in in, around things that make me uncomfortable and and engage people in the world more i think there was a lot of things i um was able to like excuse myself on not doing that i just would like rationalize of like it made me cooler Mm. Right, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm too smart to do that. I'm too humble to do that. All those people are like arrogant and self-centered. I'm, you know, I'm too funny to be around. Like they're corny. They're, they're this. They're that. And a lot of it was because of my own fears and anxieties, or complacency, or belief, which is weird because this is something that I, I'm struggling with now. Is I've kind of had this belief or approach of the world that the world would take care of me, mm. and some of that has actually put me in really great places right. uh, and, and benefits me and I think is close to like my ideal philosophy. It's like, do, am I operating from a place of abundance or am I being entitled? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think I, I, you know, I had some like child star prince of the, you know, the kingdom type of sense of myself hmm. that I always was like aware of. So I would try to like at least hide or suppress or, or you know, healthily critique uh, but I think it allowed me to be stagnant in ways that, you know, I look at these 10 years and there, there are so many skills and like experience and connections that I've had access to that I have not like harnessed. Hmm. So. Does the fact that you didn't harness them 
do you feel like you like let something down or let someone down by not doing that? Myself, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty good right now on like what I've have and will offer to the world. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like I owe anything. I always want to do more. Yeah, yeah. But but I'm I'm comfortable on that. I feel like I've cheated myself. Hmm. You know, I think it, it comes out most tangibly as an artist and like my lack of produced material. Yeah. Um, but it, it it shows up in a in a bunch of ways. You think and you're gonna make some more stuff? I'm I'm working really hard to put myself in that position right yeah. right now. Um, but still got a long long way to go, which is scary because like oh I've I've made a plan I've been following it, and if I really do the math of this, I feel like I'm like 30 years <laughs> out, <laughs> and I need to like get out of my head and just like take take more risk and yeah be comfortable not being excellent or perfect all the time or in control or at all fitting yeah. the plan. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> That's just an end of decade oi <laughs> for the people. <laughs> now, let, now let's look out. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of what we did this year, in addition to just keeping the show going, was building some new things that you will be encountering next year. Yeah. So we want to share a little bit of what we have coming up in the next few months that we haven't announced yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you'll see as it happens, promoted and all that stuff. But this is your your little, what, what, what you're getting into with Ergo in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first off, Starting January 3rd and then going all the way through January, we're doing a month of programming at the Apple Store on Michigan Avenue around tech, art, and activism. Mm -hmm. So we've been working with their team there for part of their Today at Apple series to curate and host five events exploring the different ways the digital tools can be used for art making that can then feed social movement. Mm -hmm. So we'll give you a little rundown of what we got coming up for you. So on the 3rd, Animating Futures with Bria Royal. On the 9th, Participant Documentarians with Pigeon, Pagonis, and Sarah G. Ree. On the 15th, Reimagining the Map with Tanika Lewis-Johnson and Daniel K. Hertz. On the 17th, Movement and Movement. That's how dance, rhythm, and music can feed liberation feeling and movement building. And that's with Rick Wilson, Benita Appleblunt, King Dietro, and Ayende Cartman. And then... Wrapping it out on the 23rd on the mic. And that's the two of us with poet Jonathan Mendoza and rap duo Mother Nature. And that's about amplification, both literal and figurative, for how we tell our stories and build social movement. Come on. Do y'all hear that fire? That's some quality curation. Do y'all hear that fire? You don't You don't curate like us? <laughs> Except we, for the people who yeah. do kind of do these similar <laughs> events. We see you. We're happy to be in community with you. Uh, but those are going to be a blast. We're really excited yeah, about that. Yeah, They're yeah. all free. Yep. They're all in the evening at the Apple Store. You're all going to be, in addition to hearing people talk, there'll be some hands-on mm-hmm. uh, art making and exercises with all of those. And we're just really excited to be kind of building a space there in the middle of this crazy commercial corporate room where people can look at each other, engage each other, and start thinking about the questions uh, that can transform that place in the, you know, bustling capitalist mm-hmm. hub around it mm-hmm. um you know we know our compromises that yeah. we're making to do this but yeah. we're excited to get to bring those people those conversations into that space yeah so come through yep other things that are that are in the works and don't have quite as much form yet uh is we're continuing our relationship with, with byp black youth project the website <laughs> <laughs> which is becoming kathy's new <laughs> new little tag at the <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're, we're doing a, a, a three-part series 
uh, around radical imagination, electoral politics called Unelectable. Uh, well, well, we'll be talking about some of the bigger themes, obviously in the shadow of the presidential race that is looming on us all. But if you want to hear what Joe Biden did on Thursday, don't listen to us. Yeah, obviously. Because I don't give a fuck. Yeah, you know we're not rocking with his ass. And so we're going to do three events. One in late February, one in June, and one in October before the presidential election. Talking about radical ideas, potentially talking to some folks who have relationship to government or have been elected or something like that. Movement folks, creatives, in the theme of what we do. Uh, but specifically more charged towards national politics. And how do we move these ideas that feel, quote, pie in the sky or idealized that people critique that way? How do we move them into the mainstream conversation around what is electable? And and these things that people idealize because Mm -hmm. they are good ideas, Mm -hmm. but then are seen as easy to be dismissed. How do we move those into things that people have to take seriously? And something I would be excited about is coming out of that, of knowing why these things are unelectable in the first place. Exactly. It's not inherently impossible. There are, there are real active decisions that are made in pattern that make these things marginalized. And so let's expose some of that. So two of those events will be here in Chicago. The third one may be in Detroit around Ally Media Conference. We shall see. Yes. Um, but keep an eye out for that. The first one will be in late February. And then we are excited to announce a partnership with Elevate Energy, which is a alternative energy policy and uh, infrastructure nonprofit based here in Chicago. They work toward renewable energy policy while also helping people retrofit their homes to make their energy bills more affordable by using alternative energy sources. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to be doing with them as part of their 20th anniversary is doing a five-part series, which you'll be able to hear here on Ergo, but then we'll also live on their website where we interview environmental justice trailblazers in Illinois People doing meaningful environmental justice work who will be sharing how they got to the place that they're at and the lessons that, one, everyone as people who are concerned about the coming apocalypse, um, but then also specifically for people doing work like Elevate Energy. What are the lessons that we can learn from the people who are doing this work on the ground and are centering the humans in relation to the environment? Because people, as you always say, are part of the environment. So that'll be coming out starting in March. Mm -hmm. Keep an eye out for that. And then lastly, you want to give them a little teaser? Yeah. So we are very, very excited. um, And we are in the early parts of a production process of creating a new web series special Mm -hmm. uh, that is in many ways a crazy thing that does not... (laughs) (laughs) That is that does not exist yet. So we're really excited um, in some like great and scary ways yeah. uh, about trying to create this this new piece or this new document that puts a lot of the people we've had on the show in conversation in real time in a space while also crafting the future world that we want. So it's going to be called in circles. Yes. It's going to be people talking. Yes. There's going to be some sketch. Yes. We're like writing comedy sketches. Yes. We're doing stand up together. Yes. We're facilitated. You know, we're no stranger to a facilitation. We <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, hesitate. We facilitate. Sure. Hey, you know, yeah. you're yeah. on your own yeah, on yeah, the yeah. bars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, was my like late '98 New York rapper version of like a social justice. <laughs> <laughs> that's my DMX growl. <laughs> um, so that's going to be coming out in the fall, but we're shooting it in the early spring. It's a big experiment for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never done it before, but there's lots of other things we've never done before before. Yeah. So we're really excited about it. 
I'm terrified. Uh-huh. I think it's going to be really fun. And then just continuing to keep this archive going yeah. and continuing to do, you know, episodes that are, you know, moving into the internal lives of these people doing great external work, which I think has been something that's really emerged for us is yeah. it's less about what you do and it's more about how and why you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're excited to keep those conversations going. Here are some ways that you can support us mm-hmm. as we move into 2020. One, subscribe, rate, review us on Apple Podcasts or review listen to your podcast. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people in political opposition to you. We don't mind. We'll take the listens. Yeah, 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 for sure. Bring us to your campus or your organization. We can offer a bunch of different things. We do workshops around media dialogue and radical imagination. We also, if you're interested in building a podcast, we will consult you through that. We have a three-session package to get you from an idea to a fully fleshed out, fully realized podcast. And it'll actually, if you do it, well, we'll be good. Yeah. Like not just like oh, our company has a podcast that nobody listens to. It's like, no, no, we're gonna make we're gonna help you make this space that mm-hmm. you need in your space. Mm-hmm. Please buy your t-shirts. I don't know. I guess someone's buying a t-shirt. I checked this month. We've sold like not a lot of t-shirts. So we still have some t-shirts available. <laughs> you can buy that on our website, ergoradio.com slash store. Uh any other any other plugs? No, no. Let's uh almost get out of here with looking forward a little bit further. So we talk about making the world a more creative and equitable place. So let's look forward a decade Mm. as we close, whether for the external world or for you Mm -hmm. and your work. Uh, What are some visions or dreams for 2030, which is obviously not as sexy sounding 2020. (laughs) No one's going to be as hyped for that, but it's coming. Uh, what What are your dreams for a more creative and equitable world and your relationship to it? So here's what I want to see happen over the next 10 years. I want to see globally an insistence and a dedication to acknowledgement and repair Mm. on a state level. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be too crit. Like I'm not saying this is not, I'm not even saying revolution. Like that's not this claim. What I want to see. I am. Sure. (laughs) Great. I'm not saying I'm anti that. All I'm saying that what I want to see states and governments that have done fucked up shit, admit you've done fucked up shit Mm -hmm. and then figure out what you can do to, we have so many examples of this. I was just reading about like Canada had a truth and reconciliation committee in between 2008 and 2016 in regard to indigenous people. It was critiqued, did all kinds of, but it created this huge new conversation that has shifted Canadian culture around their understanding of land, indigeneity and resource. Mm. And so what it means is that when the fucked up shit happens, there's not an expectation that that's how it has to go. There's another voice that gets looked to to be in conversation with that that's been legitimized by the state, right? right? So I want to see that happen. It's not the end goal, but it's, you know, to quote our favorite, you know, the anti-Game of Thrones, Watchmen, Mm -hmm. you can't heal with a mask on, Yeah. right? Wounds need air. Wounds need air. So what I'm interested in is a- Oh, God, so fucking good. (laughs) If you haven't seen Watchmen, go watch Watchmen. Oh, my Lord. I want to see- the wounds, seeing the air. And I think that that process doesn't have to be as violent as it sounds or as it feels to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The deep fear and anxiety about what that would look like, I think it could actually be okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when people are vulnerable, usually they don't hurt each other in the same ways. Mm -hmm. They might hurt each other, but they're not trying to, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what I'm really invested in, is for institutions on every scale to think about what are the wounds that need to be aired so that they can heal? How about you? I think to condense it all, I want to see a more cooperative mm-hmm. world. 
which is right in, in alignment uh, with what you just offered. So I think that has to start first with like our relationship to land. Yeah. And so I think around the world, people just challenging the notion of land ownership. So I'm not like, being utopist of like, let's all just free range, right? Like people can have domain or we can collectively decide where things happen and people need shelter. Uh, but if we continue the assumption that we can own the earth, we are going to destroy it. We're going to destroy each other. Um, the whole idea of the nation state is that there is a, a corporate entity or, you know, however you define corporate. Corporate meaning corporeal, meaning made up of right. many parts right. to make a whole. Great job. I'll play the etymology, though. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, 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 yeah. Etymology, see what I'm trying to say. That, can, that owns, right? So the United States says we. this is our national interest is we own these lands. And it's not true. Right. Like right. We, it was here before us and it will be here after us. Um, and we might not be able to continue if we keep upholding that assumption. Uh, and so we have to cooperate in like all forms. Um, so that's politically, economically, socially, culturally. Uh, and so I think, you know, one of the best examples of that is cooperative enterprise. So let's figure out how to share our resources in the work that needs to be done. Um, and it's not something to make up. Right. Like if you look at the black liberation tradition, which I center myself in. Um, you know, Ella Baker and everybody, they were doing this for 30 years. You know, <laughs> they had cooperatively, like there, there is an example, there is a precedent. Um, and although most of them could not survive because of real world examples, the benefits that were recorded and, you know, scientifically studied um, are undeniable. And so right. if we actually invested in it instead of trying to suffocate cooperative activity, it can be successful. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, for me, that looks like on a personal level, I'm very interested in the notion of publishing and production at large, mm -hmm. right? Like music needs to be published, curriculums need to be published, books and literature needs to be published, and all those things also need to be produced. And so how can we share the resources to market? How do we share the infrastructure to record and capture and edit and publish and produce the world that we want? Mm. So you're saying you're going to make a publishing and production co-op? That is my dream, yep. You heard it here first, folks. Yep, yep, yep. So publish and produce the things I want to do. But, you know, I would love for there to be 10 to 15 podcasts in the city that mm. are from us. And then there's video content, yeah. being able to challenge the music industry and make things organically in a way that shares resources, all of that. Yeah. Mm. All right. So before we get out of here, you know, we, we ask people a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get really deep with people. Yep, yep, people yep. are super vulnerable. Yep, yep, yep. But there's just one question that I think has stimulated more tumult than any other question we've asked over the years we've been on the air. So a couple months back, in our conversation with the wonderful Monica Cosby, we asked the, the hard-hitting journalist the question of, what is an American dumpling? <laughs> For those who didn't hear that episode one, you should go listen to it. But basically, my premise is that cultures around the world have some equivalent of a dough encasement with a meat or filling in the middle. Mm -hmm. That is a universal mm -hmm. or at least a global yes. <laughs> phenomenon. But what is, you know, in our hybrid settler colonial culture, what is our equivalent? Yeah. So the, the closest that we came up with, we got a corn dog, but that's got a stick in it yeah. and a jelly donut, which is a dessert. So we pigs in the blanket. Is, pigs in a blanket is, is pretty close. Can, is the best we can do. But it still doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't. So what we're going to leave you with today, and I think this is the perfect thing to, to cap off the decade, my wonderful grandmother, Eve Bowden, one of the most brilliant and forceful people I've ever met in my life. She's lived through a lot. Um, she sent in her response to that question. And while it does not answer it, I think it poses some good 
follow-up questions and contradictions for us to continue living in. So as we move into the holiday season, uh, we want to leave you with my grandma, Eve Bowden's response to the question, what is the American dumpling? And all jokes aside, shout out to grandma. Very grateful. For grandmas. Listening. Yeah, all grandmas. Shout out to this grandma, this mm-hmm. grandma Eve. Uh, very grateful that she was listening. And I was really touched that she, you know, was moved to the point of like wanting to call in and leave this message. Yeah. And went through the work of recording a voicemail. Yeah. So, shout out to grandma. She's a fan of a voicemail. Yeah. That wasn't a stretch for her. <laughs> She's the only person in my life who leaves me voicemails. But she was ready. So She I, was queued up, ready to go. I'm grateful for this document. Thank you and much love to you. All right, folks. We'll be back on our next episode showcasing someone reshaping the culture of Chicago and beyond for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. So, honey, I just want to tell you, you sound wonderful, and your podcast with Monica Cosby was great. And there is no American equivalent to a kreplach, anyhow, or a dumpling, or a wonton, um, or a shumai. Uh, There is no American real equivalent. There's an... um, I forgot the Spanish, the empanada. It's, I don't think that's the right word. But um, I love you, and I want you to know I'm keeping up with you, <laughs> and or keeping up with your doings. Anyhow, we'll talk when you have a chance. Bye. Hey, Dave. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? <sighs> it isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. Yeah. You going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. (sighs) Yeah. Pay pay us more money, folks. (laughs) That's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. (laughs) See, that's how good we are at selling We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.